The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is one of my favorite legal writers. Dahlia Lithwick is a senior legal correspondent at Slate and the host of the Amicus podcast. Also, she's the author of the brand new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the battle to save America. Thank you so much for being here today. It's so great. Hi, to have Zerlina. You. How Thanks are you for having me? I'm okay. You know, we're 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 every day. I say, I am. I'm I'm doing it. I'm safe and sane. That's sort of my bar for how yep. I'm doing these Just days. Scraping by. <laughs> <laughs> and in part, the reason why uh, you know Jess and I, after the um, 2016 campaign we sort of stopped asking people like, how are you? We're like, how are you holding up? You know, that became the question. And that was because, you know, as feminists, we were very cognizant of the damage that was potentially um, coming um, because of Trump policies after he was elected president. And your book talks about the way women lawyers became basically like the Avengers. Um, And, pushback against many of the different things that the Trump administration was trying to do um, that were harmful to so many different communities. And I want to start with Sally Yates, because that's one of the examples that a lot of people forget. They forgot that. <laughs> um, and her name, obviously, we know it now because for, for a variety of different reasons. But tell us, remind us, remind us that story, because that was right in the beginning of the Trump administration. And a lot of people forgot that Sally Yates really was one of the first people who was like, yeah, nah, I'm going to stand up to this administration. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I feel like so much has been written about, you know, the Women's March and, you know, the Kavanaugh protests. Like, we've talked so much about women really taking the lead in the political sphere. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was fet the women who took a lead in the legal sphere because I think, it was just as significant. And like you say, some of them seem like episodic and we forgot and maybe in the aggregate, it wasn't a huge win, but you know, I think it's, it's a part of bolstering democracy. And so, yeah, the book kind of starts on Sally Yates only because she was the person I think who most significantly said no uh, to the Trump administration. And she did it, you know, within the very first weeks of inauguration after the 2016 election. And so essentially she was the acting attorney general until um, keeping the bench warm for Jeff Sessions until he uh, was confirmed to be Trump's AG. And when she found out about the travel ban, which by the way, she found out this was the ban uh, on entrance from all sorts of visa holders um, from majority Muslim countries and recall that Trump had campaigned on uh, shutting down any travel from Muslim countries. 
So when she found out about it, which she did on her phone in a car because nobody in the administration bothered to clear it with the Justice Department that she was the boss of, uh, she gave it a couple days thought and then essentially announced she was not going to defend it. And she was not sending out her DOJ lawyers to defend it because she thought it was rooted in religious animus and that it violated the due process provisions of the Constitution. And, you know, as everyone remembers, she was summarily fired. And so I, I, I take the story to mean a couple of things. One is here's a really high profile woman fighting back. Here's a really high profile woman fighting for the integrity and the independence of the Justice Department. And as you said, here's a story that we kind of all but forgot. And I think it needs to be lifted up as a story of what women have done and continue to do uh, to fight sort of uh, tyranny and authoritarianism. It's so it's so fascinating that we forgot that because I wonder if she were a man, if we were to forgotten that whole story, like we just like sort of put that, I guess, in the back of our brains and cataloged it without realizing it was there. Um, but I, I, I love that you start with that. And then also um, in the book, you talk about some other folks that I love. Um, we had Robbie Kaplan on um, when the lawsuit against the Nazis was first starting off. So you also um, profile Roberta Kaplan, who is one of the nation's preeminent lawyers. In fact, if I ever get in trouble, I might call her um, just because she's the best one, um, <laughs> you know, out there, <laughs> basically, like um, very small in stature but larger than life in so many ways and just not unafraid, right? I mean, we had, we had her in studio and she's talking about how after Charlottesville, how they decided to sue the Nazis. So t take us inside of that story because as, as I said, you know, you're profiling these women who in the area of the law utilize their professional skill set and their expertise to fight back against an administration that, as you said, is, is creeping authoritarianism in so many ways. Yeah, and I think we forget that, you know, this is in some sense, like we're watching, you know, the women, particularly young women in Iran, you know, who are out mm -hmm. on the streets protesting and feeling such solidarity with them as we should, right? It's an extraordinary moment. But I think that we forget that we have this whole other toolkit, which is we have women judges and we have women lawyers and we have women, as you said, with highly refined skill set who are also able to fight back, you know, in courts of law and using the levers of democracy. And so, again, I think, you know, when we feel hopeless and that everything is lost and that this, you know, creeping, creeping, tyrannical worldview is coming for us, it's so important to really look at people like Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn, who, when it was clear after Charlottesville in 2017, and this was the Unite the Right march, right, with the Nazis and the Klansmen and the torch lit, you know, tiki torches chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us and chanting, you know, back to the ovens, um, that the, needless to say, aforementioned Jeff Sessions Jeff, uh, Justice Department was not going to do anything about that, up to and including investigating, you know, the death that happened to Heather Heyer as a result of that march. And so exactly what you just said, Zerlina, you know, Robbie looked around and said, well, I guess if there's not going to be a Justice Department bringing a civil rights suit, then we'd better do it. And she tapped Karen Dunn and the two of them 
uh, did. It took years and years. The suit only just uh, went to trial about a year ago, but they won. They won a massive judgment, a bunch of a bunch of whole against a bunch of um, white supremacist groups and organizers and, and hate mongers. And it was a big, big deal. And as you said, I think it's one of those things that slightly slid under the radar because we're not exactly telling all the stories of wins that we should be telling. I love that you're you're going through the list of wins because I think sometimes the Trump administration, when we think about it, it's overwhelming in how hard it was, right? I mean, especially because like the end was COVID. I think like nobody's looking back with fond memories. Um, I don't even think Republicans are really at this point if they were being 100% honest. Um, it, for different reasons but i think that it's important to document the win so you don't get sort of sucked into a you know a spiral of cynical thinking that nothing can get better that you can't push back against these kinds of things one of the other things that you talk about in the book is even the names of the people that we don't know so this is such this is one of the more fascinating parts of the book is when you talk about polly murray um because there's a documentary my name is polly murray um, but a lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of names that, of people that we don't know that impacted change, impacted change in the world, um, you know, as it relates to segregation and anti-discrimination work in the courts. Um, and But we know the name Thurgood Marshall, for example. So can you talk a bit about why, you know, this book and documenting these women is so important because there are there are names that we just get lost, right? We usually do focus on like the men who are doing work and then we forget all of these other people and women who are setting up, um, you know, so much radical change in the country that we need, that we're all fighting for, but we, their names get lost in, in the history books. It's such a, I mean, you made the point before that part of the reason we gloss over some of these heroines is because, you know, history just loves the story of the lone, you know, white guy riding across <laughs> the plain on his horse in his hat, you know, saving the day. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was a little bit to counter-program that mm -hmm. because A, I don't think that's a very useful model for democracy, right? Like mm -hmm. Bob Mueller's gonna save us, Merrick Garland's mm -hmm. gonna save us. I don't think that's the way democracy works. It's very passive. And as you said, it's also tends to be a pretty male story. And what I love about Polly Murray and a lot of the stories I tell in the book is that if you actually look at the counter narrative, which is, and this goes to, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson holding up the 14th Amendment this mm -hmm. uh, week in court. But if you look at the founding documents, women were invisible, right? I mean, it controlled every part of their lives. If you were, you know, whether you were uh, enslaved, whether you were a woman, whether you were an Indian, there are so many lanes in which you didn't matter. And so you're not in the story. And that's, in some sense, the Dobbs opinion that Justice Alito writes, like, you're invisible, go away. And what I love is that all of these communities, whether it's people of color, whether it's women, whether it's LGBTQ American, have to kind of claw their way into those documents, right? They spend centuries, literally, hacking away at this thing in order to say, okay, now I'm here. Like, look at the 14th Amendment. Now it includes me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such an important story to tell because it shows both that the playing field is kind of by definition tilted against you. 
you have to fight, right? And Sam Alito in 2022 is still going to write, oh, the word abortion isn't in the Constitution. So sorry, you have no privacy or bodily integrity. But it also tells the story of how these people who had to literally carve this thing out of rock face that was not friendly to them, often did it in huge groups, huge unsung coalitions. And so I'm obsessed with Polly Murray. Uh, and the movie is by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. It's called My Name is Polly Murray, because Polly Murray is a person who should have their fingerprints all over American constitutional history. We should have libraries and museums and coffee mugs and hats. And Polly Murray is, again, all but forgotten, because I think this is the way progress works if you're in an out group. And I think it's really important to celebrate the people that maybe we don't learn about in law school. And I certainly didn't learn about Polly Murray in Me law either. school. Well, because it's, and it's shocking. I mean, I think it's really shocking that the person who essentially wrote, but became the brief in Brown v. Board yep. on which Thurgood Marshall prevailed, that was a Polly Murray law school paper, never credited. Polly Murray wrote the paper that became one of the most important briefs that Ruth Bader Ginsburg used when she refashioned the 14th Amendment to protect on gender lines totally forgotten, although at least Ginsburg credited Polly Murray. And so time and time again, I think history is full of these people who are on the outside fighting their way in and then don't get credited for it. Man, I want to give all the credit. I'm going to make Polly Murray shirts. Are we allowed? Like, because <laughs> I think I feel like that would really make a statement. Um, one of the other things I was thinking about um, before this conversation is whether or not you felt like this book coming out now was like how you'd want it to happen or if you felt like people would be too deflated or dejected post-ops like when it you know because books take a, a long time to write so you were working on this for a really long time the Dobbs decision comes out nobody really knows how anyone is going to react we assume people are going to be mad but we're not sure how mad or if they're going to organize um get organized um utilizing <laughs> their anger as sort of fuel um for for all of their engagement um but but what's the response to the book been in this moment in your view like is it a good time for us to be reflecting on these stories of women who are fighting in a moment where you know a lot of women around america a lot of women and allies and people who can get pregnant frankly anybody who cares is going to have to steal their spines a little bit and sort of stand up like the women in this book did in whatever field they're in so first of all, Zerlina, thank you for not constructing that question the way I've had it in some other contexts where people are like, you must be so psyched that Dobbs came down and really goosed uh, <laughs> interest in your book, because that is clearly uh, not right. And, and Wait, I should just said that. Yeah, Why would somebody know. say that? Well, because... I think I wouldn't ask that because I know you're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> But also, I mean, you and I had a conversation after Dobbs, I remember, yep. where a lot of people were saying, oh, this is great because it's going to get out the vote. And it just goes to show that even among some of our allies, sometimes mm. women are transactional entities, right? Mm. Like it doesn't matter that women are bleeding out on the table in Texas because they can't get emergency uh, uh, reproductive care because this is going to make people mad and it's going to get them to register. And I really... 
I, you know, we're sitting here kind of chuckling about it, but it's a really, really, I think, endemic way to talk about women mm. and voting in politics. Yeah. And so I'm 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 actually grateful that I know you would never frame it that way, but you'd be stunned at how often it's framed that way. But I think that, you know, the quick answer is, look, I had to rewrite chunks of this book after Dobbs. Yep. And there is a section of this book on a huge, huge abortion win uh, by Bridget Amiri at the ACLU. And one way to look at it is like, well, but that's all gone now, because even though she prevailed uh, fighting on behalf of migrant teams in the border, uh, you can't get an abortion in Texas now. So it doesn't matter. But I, I, I resist the temptation to be hopeless and cynical, because I think that the book reminds us that we were in horrible times in 2016 and these women fought back and they won and they won and they won. And Donald Trump, let's recall, was the losingest president in American legal history. He lost all the time. And you know he lost all of his 60 plus bids to set aside the elections in court. So I think it's too soon for hopelessness. I think that a book that I thought was slightly going to be cast as history is now cast as a blueprint going forward. Mm. And the last three chapters, I should be really at pains to say, are all about voting and organizing and registering, you know, Stacey Abrams and vote suppression, Nina Perales and gerrymandering, so that I think the book actually lands not in ancient history, but in like a very systemic conversation about what we would need to do right now to fight back against Dobbs. And it's not just registering voters, right? It's doing away with vote suppression. It's doing away with uh, election denialism. It's fixing gerrymandering. And so what I wanna say, and then it's not just to say that the book isn't you know, obsolete ancient history or Pollyanna-ish, is that I think of the book not just as sort of the path through you know, for very, very hard years, but I think a light forward to like fundamental democracy reform that goes way beyond just, you know, protesting or beyond registering more voters and goes to fixing the very structural ways in which women remain invisible to the law and the constitution today. So that's actually the perfect segue to my next question. And you mentioned Stacey Abrams. So I want to talk a bit about what she did which is, I think, different from what people think that she did in Georgia post-2018. So after she ran in 2018 for governor, and obviously that race was extremely close, and it, the result was very controversial, and ended up in the courts because of some of the different aspects of the way that transpired. Um, but talk a bit about how she didn't just register more voters. Because leading into 2018, um, the new Georgia project, that, that was what she was doing. She was primarily registering voters in all different parts of Georgia, rural communities, urban, like all over Georgia. She was going everywhere in Georgia, registering voters everywhere. And in 2018 came up a little bit short, according to the official results. And so after that, she didn't just go back to registering voters. Tell us what she did and why her strategy, because it included a legal one, why her strategy was so forward thinking in terms of changing the structures? I think in effect, what she foresaw is exactly the moment we're in right now, Zerlina, where you know she was running against Brian Kemp, who was also tasked with running the election, right? Which is in and of itself, like unthinkable. I think <laughs> Jimmy Carter, um, I quote Jimmy Carter in the book saying like, this is the stuff of, you know, banana republic. Like mm -hmm. this is not how you run an election where Brian 
Kemp, who's running for governor, is also in charge of all the election administration. And so now we see that, right, where we have election officials all around the country who are setting rules for the elections in which they themselves are running. And I think the other thing that she gave a name to was the ways that voter suppression would be deployed. And there were a whole bunch of tricks that were used in her gubernatorial run, whether it was, you know, cutting down uh, minority precincts or purging voters or this, you know, these, these systems of like signature matching, one thing after another that made it clear that the Republican Party was going to settle on a strategy of if we can't win because of demographics, we can win by suppressing minority vote, right? And to this day, I think she contends that there were so many irregularities in the running of that election that it was impossible for her to say that it was fairly run. Now we see that, right? Around the country, you can see, you know, precincts that were shut down because they're in, you know, majority Black neighborhoods and long, long, long lines and, you know, machinery that doesn't work. The whole system of voting has been deployed in a lot of contexts to make sure that people don't vote. And which people? Surprise, surprise, you know, the elderly, the young, women, people of color. None of this is a surprise, but I think what Stacey Abrams did was already started planning the battle against that. And so, as you say, part of what she did both after 2018, and I think it's a huge reason that those two Georgia Senate seats flipped blue in 2021 Mm -hmm. in the special election is, as you say, going knocking on every door, going to every precinct, making sure people understand that even if they don't think government works for them, they have an option to do something about it. And more deeply, and I guess this goes to my point that I was making before about structural reform, getting people to understand that it's not enough to just vote in one election. You have to vote in your state and local races. You have to vote in your school boards. That democracy is not a like, oh, I like this candidate because they're charming and funny. So every four years, I'll go out and pull the lever. It's an ongoing practice. And one of the things that she is so adept at is convincing huge swaths of voters, again, largely women, people of color, people who think, you know, there's no role for me in democracy. It does not show up for me, that they need to show up for it. And I think that she's just been a juggernaut in terms of both messaging that and also scaling it so that Mm -hmm. what was happening in Georgia in 2018 uh, at least has a name and at least has a strategy in 2022 in the midterms. It's so important, and I, I think it's such a smart point about that special election, the, the two Senate races, and I don't think that we probably credit Stacey Abrams enough for that particular win. Um, the last question in the last three minutes here um, is about this current court. I mean, the Supreme Court feels like it's a hot mess right now, I, for lack of a better way to describe it. Talk a bit about what's happened this week as the new term um has and and now we have a justice um jackson on the bench who is now a voice (laughs) um uh for so many different issues i mean speak to what has transpired just in the first few days here um as we start the new term i mean i think hot mess is probably the correct (laughs) constitutional you know doctrinal category right it's it's we've got a six 
three super super majority that is also supercharged right that has shown no interest in slowing down what started last year in terms of reversing precedent willy-nilly just simply batting away tests that exist last term you know we get hyper focused on Dobbs but it was also guns it was also the environment yeah. it was also uh, religion right there was very few contexts in which the court wasn't going for it and going big and I would say the context in which they didn't touch cases last year are, is, are all on the docket this year. So we have affirmative action on the docket. We have the Clean Water Act on the do docket. We have this independent state legislature theory, which is another hot mess, which we, you know, could end the way uh, we do elections going forward. And, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act, there's nothing that isn't on the docket this year. And maybe the thing to say is that in the midst of this seemingly, seemingly kind of hopeless and futile thing, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson launches her career not sitting quietly. Sometimes it takes justices months mm -hmm. to speak from the bench, but giving voice loudly and vocally to not just, you know, the, the, the cases that, that are being ignored and set aside, but the actual constitutional text and history that mm -hmm. undergirds the progressive side. And so the moment that folks should listen for, and it's amazing, is in a case about Section 2 of the voting rights in Alabama, when the state of Alabama is essentially going to eviscerate what's left of the Voting Rights Act after it's been chipped away by the court. Here's Katanji Brown Jackson reading the framing documents and the reports from the 14th Amendment to make the point that actually, no, it was not meant to be colorblind. It was meant to remediate horrific racial discrimination. And in her hands and in Absolutely. her voice, broadcast by the way to the world, we hear like, oh, the original text in history is not on your side, fellas. Yeah, like that's, that's the funniest thing is like, it's one of the reconstruction amendments, everyone. I need you to read a book. Okay. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, it was race neutral. No, I don't think so. Um, the book by Dolly Lithwick, Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America is an excellent one. It is so timely um, for so many reasons. Thank you so much for being here this morning. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. And um, as I often say to you, like, let's just keep on trucking. <laughs> yes, we're just going to keep going. One foot in front of the other. That's what we're doing. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 